This is a recording made in the chapel of the open book and is number nine of a series entitled Glory. The subject that will be before us this evening is a part of the tabernacle typical furniture, the cherubim of glory, which were resting upon the mercy seat. The Apostle speaks of it in Hebrews 9.5 like this, And over it the cherubim of glory, shadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak particularly. And we may say, well, what a pity. But on the other hand, that very expression is a little warning to those of us who have to do some teaching that we can't cram everything, every time, into every message we give. Uh, it's wise to remember limitations. And so as the cherubim could not be dealt with by the Apostle Paul himself without taking a tremendous amount of space and time, he very wisely said, of which we cannot now speak particularly. And we are attempting this evening to deal with a subject which he thus put on one side. We can only ask for grace that we may be guided and that some truth that will be a blessing to us will come out of our study. The cherubim are strange creatures, anyhow. They are described very vividly in the opening chapters of the epistle of the book of Ezekiel with the four faces and four heads and so on. They are called beasts in the book of the Revelation very wrongly. For the word beast ought to be left for the Antichrist, and these ought to be called the living creatures, the same as Ezekiel calls them, with their four faces. He said, it's a peculiar thing, isn't it? Four faces. If you were to go into the British Museum, or you may have gone there, at the head of one of the great galleries, you will see on either side a pair of monstrous figures, huge granite figures. The uh, body is the body of an animal. It has wings. It has the face of a man. And two pairs have hoofs of a bull and two pairs have feet like a lion. And they used to stand in the days of uh, Assyria and Persia, at the entrance to the temple and the palace. Well, what gave them such an idea of a monstrous creature? A lion, a, la a man, an ox, an eagle. Where did they get that from? Well, if you go upstairs in the British Museum to the Egyptian section, you will find they had four peculiar jars that had similar figures on the top, the lids were made like those animal faces, that stood at the four corners of a tomb. Why? There must be something that had left its mark upon the nations of the earth in the early days that had become perpetuated in these peculiar things. Well, this question of the cherubim goes right back in the Bible to the Garden of Eden, and when you go a little further in the Bible, it goes back before the Garden of Eden. And then it goes right on through the scriptures in its uh, typical character and emerges in the book of the Revelation where it reaches its goal. And so we're going to look at something this evening which we must confess will be difficult, but we must confess that it's written for our learning and 
trust that the Lord will give us at least something worth our while. On the Sunday mornings in this uh, same chapel, we have been considering something about the tabernacle, and we realised that the outer court and the brazen altar and the brazen laver and the veil and all that there which was had to be passed by priest into the second veil which the high priest went once a year. There was the ark. There was the mercy seat. And there, the central, the final, was the cherubim of glory on the mercy seat. The very centre of Israel's worship, the very centre of the whole camp, for they camped round it, was the cherubim of glory resting upon that which was a figure of atonement, resting upon that which was the covenant-keeping God, resting upon that which is purpose, which he's going to carry right through. So strange as it may seem, there's evidently a purpose in this, and we as children of God must give some attention to it. Cherubim of glory, that's their title. Now in the first case, we must look a little bit earlier than Genesis chapter 1. Well, you say, well, you're going to find that. Well, it's no good turning to the earlier introduction to your Bible, but you'll find it in the prophecy of Ezekiel chapter 28. Just a few references to a very difficult passage there. Ezekiel 28. And here is the cause of all the trouble. Here is the need for redemption and the great outworking of the purpose of the ages. Someone is addressed in this chapter 28. It says, verse 12, Son of man, take up the lamentation upon the king of Tyre, and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God, Thou seedest up the sun, full of wisdom, and perfect in beauty. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was thy covering. And then further down, verse 14, Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth, and I have set thee so. And then ultimately, you find that because his heart was lifted up, in verse 17, because of his beauty and his wisdom, he was cast out, and will ultimately be brought to nothing, to ashes upon the earth. Now, this is a very strange person. It cannot mean an ordinary son of Adam. For no son of Adam is the sum up of beauty or perfection. And this one had been in Eden, the garden of God. And as far as the record of our Bible is concerned, there was Adam and his wife, and nobody else except the serpent. Now let's think again. When we examine the whole Bible, especially with the aid of the Greek Old Bible, Greek Old Testament, so that we've got Greek all the way through, we discover this, that the very word in Genesis 1, which is translated deep, darkness was upon the face of deep, that very word is the word translated the bottomless pit in the last chapters of the New Testament. Beginning and end with a bottomless pit. 
And out of that bottomless pit, this serpent who was there for a thousand years is liberated, and the moment he comes out, he attempts once more to deceive. Go back to the beginning of the Bible. There is a perfect creation from the hand of God. There is the Garden of Eden. And into that garden comes a serpent, which is pictured later on as the devil and Satan. And there waiting for us in the opening of the first chapter of Genesis is the same word, the bottomless pit. So this evil one, likened to a fallen cherub, seems to belong to the creation that was destroyed and of which the present one is just a buffer state in between the two eternities to which we are moving. As I say, it's a subject which is vast, and we mustn't be surprised if sometimes we trip up. I'd have to confess that it's too much for us. But don't you see, here is a subject which we cannot lightly pass by. And this cherubim in the mercy seat, resting upon that of propitiation which Christ has made, are called the cherubim of glory. So ultimately, the glory of God is associated with these cherubim. We have a difficulty to understand the meaning of the word. Now, I'm no Hebrew scholar. I can puzzle my way through, but I cannot pronounce uh, with any sort of definition. But looking at the word kirab, as it stands in the Hebrew language, it's made of two parts. And it means like, ki, rub the greatness. Like the greatness. It was some symbol that was like the greatness of God. Does that give you a little idea that this marvellous person that is described here in Ezekiel 28, as it were, tipped over because he was like the greatness and he sought to be like the Most High in a sense that was wrong, and so failed. It's a guess. I just leave it with you. Well, now we find that this, uh, the reference to Cherubim, as I say, I put personally, Ezekiel 28, right back outside the beginning of our Genesis, right back there. And because of that over that fall, because of that, then God made the present creation. He put the man there in that garden. And he was planning. Of course, he knew what was going to happen. But he gave him there as a type and symbol of his greater son. Because when it says, let us make man in our likeness and after our image, it really means, let us make man in the likeness of our image. Adam was in the likeness of Christ, who is the image of God. He was the likeness of Christ upon earth, but he failed. And the failure was due to this temptation, to be like God. The evil one didn't tempt our first parents for some gross sin, so many have been deceived by the idea of the apple. That's altogether wrong. When they saw that it, when she saw it was to make one wise, not to make one wicked. 
It was just an aspiring to a position which was beyond the decree of God but this evil one himself had fallen. So we'll turn back now, if you will, to Genesis, the third chapter, where the first occurrence in our Bible of the word cherubim comes. And just give a little attention to these references. The last, um, the last two verses, Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden, to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man. And if he had stopped there, friends, there would have been no hope for any one of us. He drove out the man. Man had lost Eden. But there was a way back going to be suggested, and here it begins. And he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubim. And please, don't say cherubims, although it's in your Bible, because I am, at the end of a word, is plural. Cherubim is plural. And a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. Now that may be thought to keep you away from the tree of life. And it was certainly keeping Adam and Eve from going back into the garden. But there's also the other thought. It was going to keep and guard the way of the tree of life till it could be taken rightly. And in the first chapters of the Bible... We have the tree of life forfeited, but the flaming sword keeping the way. And the last chapters of the Bible, we read that they have at last the right to the tree of life. It begins a book and it ends the book. And the cherubim are associated with it here, as you see in this first occurrence. Not only so, he drove out the man and he placed now, once again, if you've got uh, access to the original, you'll find that the word placed means to tabernacle. It's the first occurrence of the word translated tabernacle in the Bible. So here was a tabernacle. Not something to forbid and keep them in a state of terror, but something to give them hope. A tabernacle with a tree of life, guarded, but giving them hope in their end. And so it was that when the two sons grew to age, they came to the door. As the Lord said to Cain, the uh, sin offering, our version says, sin lieth at the door. As though uh, it was a novelist saying, you know, be sure your sins will find you out. There's nothing what the Lord said at all. He said to Cain, you could have brought the same as Abel. A sin offering is lying at the door. What door? The door of the tabernacle. That's where you've come to offer your sacrifices. And so the cherubim enter into the story in the opening chapters of human history. The next one, of course, is in the tabernacle, which we get in full description in the book of Exodus. There's we suggested already. There's that safeguarding, that sacredness, all the people of Israel kept away from it. Anyone who drew near within certain distance did so under the penalty of death. When they did come, they brought sacrifices at the door. And then when those sacrifices were offered, they passed. There was a, a, a place for washing hands and feet. And when they went in, they were still in and outside. Only the high priest, once a year, and not without blood, went into that holiest of all. 
And there, in that holiest of all, in the highest position, and the last thing mentioned, is the cherubim of glory. Surely, if we're going to give credence to the word of God as being an expression of his own will and purpose, that's on purpose. If we'd only realise what the cherubim of glory stands for, the whole purpose of redemption, the whole failure of man, and the failure of those others who were before man, all involved, and so it's well worth a little more attention when we come to the days of Solomon we find that he built his temple and he didn't have cherubim just small figures but he had them made of olive wood and their tips of their wings spread over the whole of the holy place he still emphasised the cherubim that's in the book of Kings well, when you come to the, to the thought of the whole series of those who were involved in the, in the, um, I'm just going to get this out. I don't think I can, uh, you can see exactly, but I've got here, I haven't had time enough, energy enough to produce a chart for this for the moment, but I've got here all the references to the cherubim, and I'll just read them out here. I've got, first of all, the anointed cherub, that's right in the beginning. Then we have Paradise Lost. That's what you've just looked at. Then we have the tabernacle and the temple. And we're going to look presently at Ezekiel, where the, the cherubim are associated with the glory that was taken from and yet went back to the temple. And then we have the Lord's anointed and then paradise restored. It's that Lord's anointed for the moment that I would like you to think about. Our Saviour has been described not in two Gospels or in five Gospels, but in four. And those four Gospels have their own individual characteristics. And again, I'm picking up a piece of print and this you can obtain, of course, at the end of a meeting if you don't possess it. That's a suggestion of the four Gospels. And the four Gospels have got in the middle the lion, the uh, ox, the man, and the eagle. And we have the four Gospels setting forth Christ in these terms. Behold thy king. That's Matthew. The king. These four faces of the cherubim, the lion, the king. And then we have, in Mark's gospel, so different from Matthew's. Matthew's gospel starts with a genealogy to show that he was literally and truly the son of Abraham, the son of David, and fulfilled prophecy. But Mark gives you no pedigree. He starts straight off with his ministry. A servant. I suppose today it would be very strange if you demanded a pedigree of someone who was going to be a servant. It wouldn't matter whether their parents came over with William the Conqueror or not, as long as they were good servants. But it mattered a tremendous lot if you're going to be claim, claiming to be the son of David to sit upon his throne. So we have Matthew the king, and we have Mark the servant. And then the peculiar character of um, Luke's Gospel is that he alone of the four of the four gospels speaks about Adam. 
He's not satisfied with taking our pedi- the pedigree of the Lord back to Abraham. Because right back to Adam. This is the man. The man. And so we have behold the man. Behold thy king. Behold my servant. And then we have behold your God. John comes along and says in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. And at the end, a doubting Thomas falls at his feet and says, My Lord and my God. There's a fourfold picture. There's the lion. There's the ox, the servant. There's the man's face. And there's the flying eagle. So our Saviour comes in to take the place of the one that failed. And because of his wondrous work, access to the presence of God and a right to the tree of life have been preserved. Well, so far. The next thing I think we must do is to just, um, I want to make sure of the features. The only thing I think we need to do now is to realise that clever though we may be, modern though we may be, we cannot expect to understand the working of the purpose of God unless he stoops to use pictures and figures. We're only children when we are dealing with these mighty things. But let us be glad that he has stooped and written these things and given us these very wonderful types and shadows. So we have now then, uh, I think I'll just have to turn you to Ezekiel if you won't, to, if you will, for a moment, to notice the way in which the uh, cherubim are associated there in the first chapters. In the first chapters, we have these very, very peculiar characters described. You notice in chapter one, verse ten: "As for the likeness of their faces, they forehead the face of a man." and the face of a lion on the right side, and they forehead the face of an ox, and the the face of an eagle, so there they are there, and we discover, and I'll let you do the chapter and verse discovering for this, because it would take up more time than we have left, that you will find in Ezekiel, right in the middle, shall I say, of Ezekiel, is the cherub that fell, as we've looked at in the 28th chapter. And at the beginning of Ezekiel, we have the glory of God going away. As it were, quietly, as though reluctantly leaving the temple, going to the door, going down the, as it were, the way, and right out into the distance. And then at the end of Ezekiel, we see the glory of God coming back. And the cherubim with it coming back, the same way as it went, until at last the glory of the Lord plunged the temple And the title at the very last verse of God, the last verse in Ezekiel is, Jehovah Shammah, the Lord is there. He's back again. The glory of the Lord associated is personal presence, as it were, connected all the time with the cherubim. And there's one other feature that I think will come to the mind of most of us. There is a tree that's very dominant in Genesis 3. That tree. And there's a tree in the last chapter of the book of the Revelation. And there's a tree in the Gospels. 
But that tree is where our Saviour died, the just for the unjust, that he may bring us to God. And so we get type and shadow and doctrine, wonderful pictures, to help us to appreciate in some small measure what we are all up against. We are in the midst of the working out of a purpose. Somewhere in the beginning, there was a fall, an angelic fall. And if you think it's not possible for angels to fail you, fall, you find that it actually says so. And there will be war in heaven before the age reaches its goal, and they will be cast out. And so our Saviour has stepped in. And from Genesis 3, where Adam loses the right to the tree of life, to the book of the Revelation, where they have the right to the tree of life, we have this working out of a purpose that goes beyond our understanding, but nevertheless not beyond our love and our appreciation. So I leave it with you now and pray that we may be conscious that God has written this word not to baffle us, but at the same time, unless we are prepared to devote some sort of energy, some sort of thought, many of these wonderful subjects will pass, as it were, without leaving the mark upon us that he intends I should. Don't let us forget that, as in most things, our Saviour gathers in, up to himself all these wonderful pictures, and he himself fulfills what the cherubim were standing for, the nine, the ox, the man, the eagle, the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of John. And then we wait until that day when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And then we wait for the further day when the Son shall yield a perfect universe to the Father, that God, not the word Father, not the word Son, but God, may be all in all, and that goes beyond our ability to encompass or explain, but we can at least believe it and wait for that blessed day when the type of the cherubim shall be fulfilled to the uttermost, and glory will be associated with it as it cannot possibly be until that day comes. So, I did feel that as we had the subject of glory before us in many phases and aspects, it would be unwise not to attempt some explanation of that which is so difficult. The cherubim of glory, of which even the Apostle Paul said, we cannot now speak particularly. So may the Lord encourage us to search and see, for it belongs to our Saviour's great sacrificial work, and that surely should never leave us unmoved and feel that we are wasting precious time. We cannot think like that at all.